you'll take your Bible with me this morning, and if you'll open to the book of Romans, chapter 5, and we're going to be reading in verse 12 down through verse 21, Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life." For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Please remember that phrase. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that you will be here and that we will have ears to hear what you have to say. We have been worshiping you in this service through song and through prayer, through fellowship, through service. Now, Lord, we come to worship you through hearing your word. Lord, I yield myself as a vessel. I am a weak vessel. But, Lord, you're not weak. You are strong. And I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will speak through your word to our hearts to change our lives. Lord, help us to go away from the service today rejoicing in the goodness of your grace that is greater than all our sins. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My uh, grandfather and grandmother grew up in England, and they immigrated to America and uh, became a part of America, and that's how we ended up as a family here in the United States. My grandparents, before they left England, were deeply involved in the Salvation Army, and that continued even after they came to the United States. My granddad became a Salvation Army captain. 
I can remember on a number of occasions seeing him dressed in his Salvation Army uniform. Uh, the Salvation Army is a quasi-military organization. It's organized sort of like the military. And so he was a Salvation Army captain, and uh, he was the pastor of the Lakewood Avenue Salvation Army Church. Uh, Lakewood, Georgia is a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. It was never a large church. It was always a relatively small congregation, but there were a lot of people's lives who were changed as a result of that ministry. Uh, they helped a lot of people who were broken and who were hurting and who were addicted and who were poor and who had been in jail or were getting out of jail. They helped all kinds of different people in many different ways. If you're not familiar with the Salvation Army, it was started by a man named William Booth. Uh, they called him General William Booth, going back to that quasi-military organization that they had. He, he was a Methodist preacher originally before he founded the Salvation Army. And in America today, we think of the Salvation Army mostly uh, as a charity organization, a charitable organization, but they are much more than that. In a BBC poll in 2002, William Booth was named as one of the top 100 greatest Britons to ever live. But what motivated William Booth in the late 1800s into the early 1900s was a passion that he possessed for the lost, a passion that he possessed to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were to Google his name and you were to look for some of the sayings of William Booth, you could find many of them. But listen to just a couple of them. He said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call? I think you should. Put your, I think you should put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have, you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Powerful, isn't it? Words that were used to motivate many to get busy in reaching the lost. On another occasion, he said, while women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out and in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. Or his words when he said, some men's passion is for gold. Some men's passion is for art. Some men's passion is for fame. My passion is for souls. And I think if you hear him and you listen to some of the other things that he has to say, you would agree that he was a man who was passionate about reaching the lost. Actually, it was William Booth who said, go straight for souls and go for the worst. 
go straight for souls and go for the worst. You know, that begs a question that we have to ask this morning. Is it really possible for the worst of sinners to be saved by the grace of God? Is there anyone who is outside the reach of his redeeming grace? Is there anyone who is so far gone that God cannot reach them and God cannot touch them and God cannot change them by his grace? The resounding answer to that question is absolutely not. There is no one beyond the reach of the incredible, marvelous grace of our God. In the passage of Scripture that we read here a few minutes ago, it might seem a little bit confusing, but I want to take a few moments and I want to try to help you understand a little bit of what's being said so that I can make one particular point and draw your attention back to it over and over and over again. If you were to read those verses again from verse 12 to verse 21, one thing that I would have you to note is that there are really two columns to be drawn. There is the column in Adam, and there is the column in Christ. He talks about these two men. One is the first Adam, the other is the second Adam. And you see it repeated over and over in verse 12. He says, therefore, just as one man, sin entered the world. Or you go down to verse 15. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Or down in verse 17, the one man's offense. And then down at the end of verse, he speaks of the other man, the one man, Jesus Christ. Or in verse 18, as through one man's offense. But then at the end of verse 18, one man's righteous act. Or in verse 19, for by one man disobedience Many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. In other words, he draws two columns. There's one man here that's Adam, in Adam, the first Adam. There is a second column that's in Christ that is the second Adam, and he's contrasting these two to each other. Take the first Adam, the Adam that God created and he placed in the Garden of Eden. And he told him, you can eat of all of the trees of the Garden of Eden, but for one. And you shall not eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all know the story, Adam and Eve placed in that garden. Eve was tempted and she was deceived by Satan. But Adam was not so deceived. Adam directly disobeyed the command of God. And as the federal head of all mankind, what happened to Adam on that day happens to every single one, happened to every single one of us. We were all in Adam when Adam sinned. We all come from Adam, all of us born from Adam. There's only one who was not born from Adam. All of the rest of us, all of humanity has been born from Adam. We have all inherited the same nature as Adam, and we all sin like Adam. As a matter of fact, in the book of, Rev in the book of Romans, 
in these opening chapters, the first three chapters of the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is seeking to convince mankind that he's a sinner in need of a savior. He goes through talking about mankind's sinfulness. He says, there's none righteous, no, not one. He says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you read carefully in, verse, or in chapter 3, you read these terrible uh, descriptions that are given of what we are really like at the core of our being because we are in Adam, because we come from Adam, because we've inherited the nature of Adam, because we sin like Adam. And every one of us, therefore, are subject to death like Adam. For the wages of sin is what? It's death. For the wages of sin is death. And all of us are sinners. All of us come short of the glory of God. All of it the result of us being in Adam. And whether you know it or not, or whether you accept it or not, the fact of the matter is you were in Adam, the federal head of all of mankind. And when Adam sinned, you suffered the same consequences as Adam suffered because you were in Adam. And everyone is born that way. Well, everyone but one. And that one is Jesus Christ. He is the second Adam, and that's the column where we're talking about being in Christ. In Adam, we all are sinners, but in Christ, we can all be made righteous. In Christ, I want to remind you that Jesus was not born of Adam. He did not have a human father. He was conceived in the womb by the Spirit of God in a miraculous way so that Mary provided for him a body, but he did not possess that condemnation that was placed upon Adam, the curse that was placed upon Adam, so that the one who was born through the Virgin Mary was the sinless son of the living God, the one who never committed any sin. And he came bringing not what Adam brought, sin and the curse of sin and death by sin. He came bringing life and righteousness and justification. He came bringing something that every person in Adam desperately needed. The reality is this. We all have been born in Adam. All of us. Uh, were in Adam when he sinned, and all of us descend from Adam, and all of us inherit the nature of Adam, and all of us have the same condemnation of Adam. As a matter of fact, uh, you go back and you read before the law was given, the law of Moses was given, you go back and you read the genealogies that are found, for instance, in the Torah, and you know what you discover? It says, this man's name, and it says, and he died. This man's name, and he died. This man's name, and he died. Who can forget, even before the giving of the law of Moses, there were the days of Noah that were some of the most wicked days that have ever been. Who can forget the Tower of Babel when man rebelled against God and said, we will not spread out, we will stay together and we'll build a tower to the heavens. Who can forget Cain killing Abel? Sin existed even before the law of Moses. Because they were in Adam. They descended from Adam. Uh, they inherited the nature of Adam. 
They had the same condemnation as Adam. They were all going to die because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came. He didn't come from Adam. He came from the miraculous conception in the womb of Mary. And Jesus was different to every other man. And when you and I put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are instantly declared righteousness and we are placed into Christ and we are covered with his righteousness. We are clothed with his righteousness so that when God then sees us, God doesn't see us in Adam. He sees us in Christ. And he sees the forgiveness that's been given to us in Christ. And he sees that we've been declared righteous by Christ. And we are in the Lord Jesus. If you look back just for a moment, how is a person changed? If they are sinners in Adam, how do we change? How do we become in Christ? How do we get clothed in the righteousness of Christ? How are we justified by Christ? It says in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ to whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How do we go from being people who are only in Adam to being people who are in Christ? We do it by trusting in Jesus. In other words, you are born once in Adam, you are born again in Jesus, in Christ. You were born a loser, but you can be born again a winner in Jesus Christ. And you can take on the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus, the only righteous one who's ever lived, the only one who wasn't in Adam and didn't possess the nature of Adam, the only one who could go to the cross, and he took our sins and became sin for us. The one who knew no sin became sin for us, and the holy God of heaven exercised his justice against mankind's sin on his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus hanging there, separated from God the Father, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But before it was over, he said, it is finished. And today, any one of us in Adam can be born again and placed in Christ and be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus so that when God looks at us, what God sees of us is the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He's trying to tell you by one man, sin came into this world, but by one man, righteousness and justification came into the world. By one man, Adam, all of us were made to be sinners. And by one man, many of us will be, will be made righteous and will be justified because we put our faith in the Lord Jesus. He goes on in verse 20, and you notice he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. I've already told you that sin was already in the world even before the law existed. The law didn't make us sinners. The law revealed our sinfulness. And the law just caused our sinfulness to, to be more recognized and for our sinfulness to be such that we see it more clearly. 
for our sinfulness to be even more sinful in our eyes. It causes us to see what we really are. But then God says, even where sin abounds, even where sin is the worst, grace does much more abound. That word, much more, that grace abounding, to abound is a, it's a Greek word. It has a prefix added to it that literally means to superabound. Wherever there's sin, there's always more grace. If there's more sin, there's always more grace. If there's more sin, there's always more grace. You can never sin away the grace of God or sin beyond the grace of God. The grace of God can reach the worst possible sinner. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The Lord Jesus, who is the second Adam, has come to undo everything that was done by the first Adam. In the first Adam, there is sinfulness. In the second Adam, Jesus, there is righteousness. In the first Adam, there is condemnation. In the second Adam, there is justification. In the first Adam, we face death. In the second Adam, we have life. In the first Adam, we face the lash of the law. In the second Adam, we face the goodness of grace. When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what we have done. It doesn't matter how low we have gone. The grace of God superabounds, and the grace of God takes away our sins, and the grace of God makes us a child of God, and the grace of God gives us eternal life, and the grace of God gives us a new beginning. Isn't that great news? The incredible grace of God. I was trying to think about some of the ways that I could illustrate to you this incredible, magnificent, marvelous grace that exceeds our exceeding sinfulness. And I thought about the Apostle Paul. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul was a man who hated Christians in those early days. He was a man who was consenting to the death of many Christians. And even the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy that God revealed his grace in him so that others would know that his grace was sufficient to reach them. He said, I'm the worst of sinners, and if God can save me, there isn't anybody God can't save. We, we could talk about Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a man who was a collaborator with the Roman people against his own people. Matthew was a man uh, who, was, who was patting his own pockets financially and lavishly on the backs of his own Jewish brethren. And yet, Matthew, this man who was a collaborator with Rome, was shown the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his life was dramatically changed. Or we could talk about Simon, Simon the Zealot. Yeah, remember that disciple? A zealot was somebody who was a part of a group that was fighting the Romans. They were seeking to throw off the oppression of the Romans. They would do anything to destroy that Roman rule over them. And they worked even in violence at times. And yet Simon the zealot was a man who was shown the grace of God. So we could talk about Paul. We could talk about Matthew. We could talk about Simon the, uh, Simon the zealot. We could even talk about Peter, couldn't we? 
Peter stood by the fire, warming his hands by the fire. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, no, not me, not me. And three times he denied the Lord. But do you remember down there by the Sea of Galilee? Jesus was cooking some fish and making breakfast for the disciples that were out fishing. And they come in and what does Jesus do? Jesus gives grace to Peter who had denied him on, those day, on that day. But you know, as I thought about those New Testament examples, I decided that I want to take you to an Old Testament example. You know, a lot of times we think in the Old Testament that God doesn't show grace, but the fact of the matter is there's grace all over the Old Testament. Our speaker last week touched on that subject. He didn't know what I was speaking on this week, but there's grace all over the Old Testament. I want you to turn with me for a moment to 2 Kings, and I want to read to you a little bit of the story of a man named Manasseh. Manasseh was uh, the king of the southern kingdom called Judah. He was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the few good kings of the southern kingdom. But his son, Manasseh, was not that same good man. And listen to what the scripture has to say about this man in 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 7. Manasseh, excuse me, verse 1, chapter 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. In other words, he copied the ways of the pagans who had been there before him. Verse 3, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars to Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. All of the gods, little g, gods of the heavens, he worships them all. We go on in verse 5, and he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Can you imagine? Now he's corrupting the temple of God. Verse 6, and he made his son, he made his son pass through the fire. He sacrificed a son. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Do you get the picture of a man who is overwrought in the worst wickedness possible? The kind of wickedness that would cause you to offer your own son as a sacrifice? Verse 7, he even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But did Manasseh follow what God said to David and his son? No. He corrupted everything he touched. Verse 9, but they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. 
If you look down to verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Judah, had done these abominations, he, was, he, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Or if you move down to verse 13, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. In other words, God's judgment is coming. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I'm going to wipe it clean. I'm going to turn it upside down, and I'm going to take all these people away. I'm going to take Manasseh away. Verse 16, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin, by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And may I tell you that he also did away with as many copies of the Word of God as he could possibly find. Later on, they found one copy. Later, past Manasseh, they find one copy because Manasseh had destroyed as many copies of the Word of God as he could get his hands on. Can you think of a more evil man? Can you think of a man more wicked than that? Can you think of a man more deserving of judgment and punishment than this man? It says in verse 17, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And then it says he died. And if that's all you read about this man, you and I would probably say he got exactly what he deserved. He got exactly what he deserved. Look how evil he was. Look how wicked this man was. But I invite you to turn with me over to 2 Chronicles where he said there's more to the story. Or as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and look at verse 10. 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 10. It says, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Chapter 33, verse 11. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh with hooks. Remember hearing about that last week? putting a hook in their jaw and pulling them along, bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. Yeah, Manasseh, for what you did, you're getting what you deserve. But notice verses 12 and 13. And see if you don't see grace that abounds. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. My friends, if that's not grace, if that's not grace more abundant, if that's not grace superabounding, I don't know what is. God's grace is greater than any sin that we can commit. And there is no one so bad and so evil and so wicked that they have sinned beyond the reach of the grace of God. I take you one more place quickly to Psalm 107. 
Over these last few weeks, I've been reading my Bible voraciously. In the last few weeks, couple of weeks, I've read the book of Psalms twice. Been listening to how David called out to the Lord, how David cried out to the Lord over and over again, and how he learned to wait on the Lord and how God gave him deliverance. And I made many of those prayers my prayers. But I found something in Psalm 107 that I want you to see. And I want you to see the grace of God over and over toward his people. Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. That was Egypt. And gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now listen. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. But listen to grace. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distresses. That's grace, friends. And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Listen. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Here's grace. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Did they deserve it? Were they worthy of it? But God was gracious to them. Verse 17, fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquity, were afflicted, their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Here's grace. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Look down to verse 26. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. They're in trouble again because of their sins and are, and are at their wits' end. But here comes grace again. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them in their, uh, to their desired haven. Oh, 
that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. What does he do? What does the psalmist do? He repeats the waywardness and the sinfulness of mankind over and over again, the Jewish people specifically, over and over again. And you'd think at some point God would say, that's enough, that's enough, that's enough, no more. But again and again, They cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and what does he do? In his grace, he comes and he saves them from all of their distresses. I want to tell you today that we serve a God who is gracious. We serve a God whose grace is greater than any sin we've committed Unbeliever, you don't believe in Jesus yet. There is no sin you have committed that is so bad that the grace of God cannot forgive. In child of God, there is no sin that you have sinned against your Father that the grace of God cannot forgive. Sin is no match for God's grace. No sin is so strong, no, sin, no, sin, no stain so dark, no addiction so binding, no habit so ingrained, no decision so stupid, no perversion so crooked that God's grace cannot forgive you and set you free. That's the marvelous, wonderful, infinite, matchless grace of God. Probably, I think most of you know, I like to go to the beach. I enjoy our beach vacation. And over the years, not so much in recent years, but over the years when I was a younger man, I'd get down in the sand uh, down at the ocean side and we'd write things with the kids in the sand, you know? You ever do that kind of a thing? More frequently, we would dig out in the sand and we would build sand castles. They weren't fabulous, they weren't elaborate, but they were sandcastles and they were happy, the kids were happy to have those sandcastles and you know you have to put a moat around the sandcastle, right? And then you got to send the kids down to the ocean where, where the water or the tide is out and get them to get buckets of water and they bring it back and they try to fill up the moat but it always dissipates into the sand. But you know there's a wonderful illustration at the ocean. You know no matter what you've written in the sand and you know no matter what kind of a sand castle you've built, you know that the tide is ultimately going to win every single time. I've never been back to the ocean the next day and what we had written is still there. I've never been back and that sand castle was still there the way that we had built it originally. The ocean won every single time. When the tide came in, it always washed it away. Can I tell you, friend, that sin is no match for God's grace. God's grace wins every single time. Every single time. I want to close with a story. It comes from a book called Will Daylight Come by Richard Hofler. And in it, he pens this story. Don't don't put your Bible up yet. (laughs) Just because I say I'm finished doesn't mean I'm actually finished. (laughs) 
Listen to what he writes. There was a little boy visiting his grandparents on their farm, and he was given a slingshot to play with out in the woods. He practiced in the woods, but he could never hit the target. Getting a little discouraged, he headed back to dinner. As he was walking back, he saw his grandma's pet duck. Just out of impulse, he let a rock fly, hit the duck square in the head, and killed it. He was shocked and grieved. In a panic, he hid the duck in the woodpile only to see his sister watching. Sally had seen it all. She said nothing. After lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes. But, Billy, but Sally said, Grandma, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered to him, remember the duck. So Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. And Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help make supper. But Sally smiled and said, well, that's all right, because Johnny told me he wanted to help. And she whispered again, remember the duck. So Sally went fishing, and Johnny stayed behind to help his grandma. After several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's, he couldn't stand it any longer. He came to his grandma and confessed that he killed the duck. She knelt down, gave him a hug, and said, Sweetheart, I know. You see, I was standing at the window, and I saw the whole thing. But because I love you, I forgave you. But I was just wondering how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. I don't know what the enemy keeps throwing up in your face over and over and over again, but I want to tell you that whatever it is, I want you to know that God's grace is greater than all your sin. It's greater than all your sin.